Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. Most artists start with a, am I painting something that looks like something that is recognizable, that gives me that feeling of satisfaction? And then when you can do that, I think you start asking the questions, and what next? Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show that gives you artistic ideas you can put to work. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. Today, I'm talking with artist Alice Sheridan. In the conversation, you'll discover how a change in your space might change your work, why having clear intent is so important, and what to do when you need to say goodbye to a layer you love, plus a whole lot more. In this episode's extended cut bonus, you'll learn why drawing might be the key to figuring out what a painting is about and some great ideas for how to hold time for your art practice. You can take a listen by joining the podcast art club over on Patreon at any tier. For show notes and to sign up for the newsletter list, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 70. All right, here we go. Hi, Alice. Welcome to the podcast. How did you get started in art? I'm not sure I've ever been unstarted in art. There's a story my mum likes to tell about that when I was at nursery school, so this is age two to three, one morning at breakfast, she couldn't find me and I'd let myself out of the door down the street and turned up and I was sitting at the nursery school. And when she got me, she said, why did you leave? And I said, well, it's painting day. So it's always something that I've really enjoyed. I didn't think it was a viable opportunity. So I ended up doing graphic design at college having done an art foundation course, which is like a one-year multi-course that you do when you leave school. Going forward to that, I thought I'll pick something more practical and I chose graphic design. So coming back to art was something that happened a little bit later in life. Well, then how did you find abstraction? I think it's a longer route to abstraction. And for me, I certainly wasn't thinking, oh, I've got to find abstraction. It was more, I need to do something else that stretches me intellectually and also so it's a funny balance, isn't it? Stretches me intellectually and also gives me something to take my mind off into another direction and also stops me thinking, something that I can just get lost in and practice. So I had small children at the time and I started doing life drawing classes again and did that for a long while and just loved the process of it. And it's just been a gradual journey from that to wanting to commit more to doing art courses, giving over more of my time. And then at some point, just over 10 years ago now, really sort of feeling, okay, so I've either got to go back and get a proper job. Ha, huh. do I really want to go back to the industry that I was working in? And I was working with a coach at the time. And she said to me, well, what do you really want to do? And I said, well, I'd really like to see where the art could go. And she said, well, should we give that a go then for a few months? So that that was it. And from then, it's just been a journey of discovering what it is that I want to make, saying yes and no to things and making a lot of bold choices along the way. Was there something about giving it a few months as opposed to giving it the rest of your life that made it feel less scary? 
Both really. You know, having worked in graphic design previously, the idea of going back into that as a then 40-year-old after a career break with children, you know, I knew I was going to be competing with, quite frankly, much younger, funkier things. And that was only going to go in a downwards direction. Whereas if I looked ahead, you know, you look at the kind of trajectory of artists, it only gets better. And there's not a lot in life that you can say that with. I mean, academically, you can improve a lot of the creative arts, writing, music, all of those kind of things. So there was a sort of long distance. This is something I can really aim for for a long time. But initially, I think it has to be, well, let's see if I change my attitude and approach for this for the next four months and six months. Because any further than that, and I think our brain starts to jump in with all of those, but you can't possibly, who do you think you are, all of those kind of questions. So, you know, there was a difference between long and short term, but certainly I was lucky that I was in a situation that my husband had the income that was keeping the family going. He's older than me, so we always had this deal He'd work, I'd look after the children, and then at some point we'd switch and it would be my responsibility. And I was always like, yeah, yeah, that'll be fine. Holy smoke, what is that going to be? I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know what it's going to be. But it comes back to that trust thing, I think. And I think that's something that you've really got to nurture. And that means pushing yourself sometimes. So yeah, long and short term, keeping both in balance. Yeah. Because there was that financial piece and that agreement with your husband, how did you balance protecting that space to learn and develop you as an artist? How did you keep the, oh no, I need to make it this a job. I need to make this a job at some point. How did you keep that space safe? Probably pretty much like an ostrich in that I probably stuck my head in the ground because the, re- you know, the realities of making money from art can be tough. And if you start to let that be the thing that really leads you, I think you can get into muddy ground quite quickly. And so for the first few years, I know I very definitely, I concentrated on the sales, not the expenses. So the revenue in, and I kept my... I was going to say I kept my aspirations small. I had a kind of step approach. So initially, my aims for the year were small scale events. I was doing small scale painting and every single tiny painting sale felt like a massive success because it was somebody outside of the home, a stranger, somebody I didn't know who was handing over, honestly, their hard earned cash for something that I had created. That buzz never, never goes away. So keeping it small initially and then year on year kind of setting slightly bigger goals and bigger goals and bigger goals. And, you know, in all honesty, it's taken a while, but I think lots of good things do. We're going to move into materials. What paints do you use? Acrylic now. When I came back to painting, I started with oil paints because that's what proper artists do. And that's what I'd sort of been trained in, if you like. That's what I'd used previously. But I found it frustrating. It felt slow and a bit sludgy. Yes, you can get beautiful colour mixes, but it didn't feel like I could move as fast as I wanted. So trying acrylics initially, again, was very frustrating. But I think often when you try new materials, it can be very frustrating. You're not an expert yet. You can't get them to work as you want. But acrylics now is my preferred option because you can layer so much. You can have them in, you know, so many different kind of formulas, thin, thick. And yeah, I still enjoy working with acrylics. I wouldn't say never to going back to oils, but at the moment, acrylics is certainly my jam with a bit of mixed media. 
How long did it take you to feel like you really had a handle on acrylics when you transitioned from oil? Two or three years, maybe. I'm still learning and I hesitate when you ask that because I think this year I've been experimenting with paint in a different way, using much more fluid versions of it, really kind of trusting that process with the paint. And I'm not at the end of that yet. And this is sort of 10 years into making paintings for sale. So a while, it takes a while. As part of that, especially with acrylics, there is so many different directions you can go and just materials are inspiring and they're beautiful, all these different things. How did you balance that? Ooh, what could this do, but have it be a distraction versus, ooh, what could this do? And it grows your body of learning. That's a good point. I think very often we start off with what do we want to create visually or what's inspiring me visually? So for me, it was subject matter at that point. And when I say subject matter, I knew I didn't want to do people, two domestics, still lives, didn't have a figure. So it was landscape and the world kind of around me, both living in a city and also how I felt when I was outside in kind of what open spaces. So I think initially the materials is very often a secondary part from what you want to paint because you're still struggling with the can I represent things in the way that I want to. Most artists start with a am I painting something that looks like something that is recognizable that gives me that feeling of satisfaction and then when you can do that I think you start asking the questions and what next what more? What else can I do with this? You know, there's a certain skill level that I've got. And what else is this medium now suggesting to me that starts becoming a little bit more expansive and a bit more open? And I think that's a fairly familiar journey for most people. I think if you just start with, okay, here are the materials, what can they do? Often we're left in this sort of void. Well, they can do a lot, but what do you want to do with it? You know, and without that hook initially to get you started, it can be a little bit of a no man's land. Was that one of the indications for you that you had sort of entered new territory when you said like, yeah, yeah, I can paint an apple, but who cares? Yeah, and I think that had happened kind of quite a bit earlier. We had a fantastic art teacher when I was in those top two years of school who was just extraordinary, very inspirational, but the teaching was very, very good in terms of teaching really clear observational skills, seeing in value, understanding value contrast, kind of colour grouping and value blocking areas to create form. So I think I had quite a good grounding in that already. I'd been working with oil paint at that point. So I think when I first came back to painting, it was, what do I want to paint? And I remember one day taking photographs out and there was this beautiful light coming through a rather beautiful Art Deco underground station in London with gorgeous windows. And I took a photograph and I came back home and I think I'll make an abstract painting of that, quite a small painting. And I kind of squinted my eyes and I painted it in what I thought was an abstract way. But of course, your brain makes up what the gap is quite quickly. And when you've got the light and you've got the value and you've got the colours all in the right place, it's kind of like, huh, well, it looks just like an underground station still, albeit a beautiful one with light coming in through the window. But it really made me realise that actually there is a huge gap. We don't need very much and our brain logs on very, very quickly to something that is recognisable. And so if I wanted to start stretching into something that was more abstract, that kind of made a bigger gap between what people were visually seeing and what I wanted them to experience, I was really going to have to stretch that gap quite 
a lot further. For you, as someone who now paints abstraction, do you think having those fundamentals was helpful? Yeah, absolutely. I think what it does, like I said, is it gives you a hook as you're learning. And when you're learning all of the things that you need to create, for example, if you take a drawing, you know, you take a figure drawing, you're thinking all the times about placement on the page, you're thinking about proportion, you've got hand-eye coordination, but also how your materials are working, like the weight of a charcoal line, how you actually change direction that gives hints of forms. And even now, if I'm out drawing in the landscape, that can be very simple. It can be very small in a tiny sketchbook with a 6B pencil, but it's the way that that mark moves on the paper. It doesn't have to be super accurate, but there is something in the, um, the language and the emotion of that mark. And I think if you learn that with something that is kind of concrete and representational, that helps when you make that jump into abstract form because you've already got that sense of using the language of the purity of the mark and the placement and the colour when we get into that. But you've done your groundwork. And I think it really helps. I feel like I sounded dismissive when I said about painting an apple because some people find joy in that discovery process. It's just for you, you realize you wanted to move somewhere else. Yeah, and it's very satisfying, you know, creating something that looks like it lifts off the page where you've got where the light just hits it beautifully. You know, you've actually chosen elements of a beautiful still life, you know, a lovely green apple sitting on a pewter plate or whatever. There is enormous beauty in that. One of my favourite paintings is a painting that my parents have got, and it's a very delicate watercolour of a single yellow rose. It's very, very small. It's beautiful. It's exquisitely painted in this little metal jug. And it's just gorgeous. I just have no desire to create work like that. But I can fully appreciate it and I buy it quite often. Could you give us a bird's eye view of your process? I was thinking about this this morning, actually. I was out having a run and I thought, what is my process? And I thought my process really is just awareness. It's not just what happens in the studio. It starts well before that. And it's you tuning into that sensitivity to what you see around you, what it is that you want to say. It's awareness about when you're using the materials, your process is going to develop and it's going to change if you're listening to that feedback from what you're seeing and what you're feeling from yourself. So I tend to just absorb ideas. I don't really plan things. So I will do work in sketchbooks. Sometimes I'll have a day color mixing. But when I start a painting, I tend to just start the painting because that immediately gives me problems to work with, visual problems. It's almost like trying to work out a maths equation and you've got to get everything in there at once in order to try and balance it up again if I get it too right early on and sometimes I think composition wise I could do that not only because of this fantastic teaching that I had at school but also through my design training which is all about placement on a page and hierarchy and all of those kind of things if you get the design right early on in a painting you've got nothing to struggle with then there's no story in the painting I think often giving myself problems during the process of making a painting that leads to a richer painting and it's where I find the enjoyment and the challenge when all of that work is evident on the canvas rather than 
happening in advance in a sketchbook and then you're just transferring it. Well, and then do you work in series? Yeah, I do tend to work in groups at a time. So often mixed sizes. So I might have a number at a large scale and a separate series working smaller alongside. But I think working in a group like that, it gives you more space to develop your ideas. You're not putting all the emphasis onto one painting. And I think that's very freeing. When you go into a body of work, do you go in with an intention or does the intention develop just working on a bunch of random paintings and then the ideas develop and then you begin the body of work? A bit of both. When you complete a group of work, I think it's really important to spend some time appreciating what you've just done. And in traditional art schools, you would have a a critique group. You would have that assessment from your peers and from a teacher. That's something that is quite often missing. But I think in any how, you have to learn to do that for yourself, for your own work. So having a bit of time with your own work and making sure that you have given yourself a little space to recognize what you've done well, where you can take ideas further and what you would like to explore next. That's usually where the idea comes from, but it might be something very loose. It could be something as simple as, I really loved working with these and now I'm feeling, again, it goes back to that awareness, I'm feeling like I want to lean towards less vibrant colours. I'm feeling like I want to work more with neutrals and really tone down the colour, but I loved working with those fluid shapes. But maybe the fluid shapes sometimes became a little bit chaotic. So how can I include those in a way that also becomes softer and gentler is that a plan is that a plan it doesn't feel like a plan to me because it's not fully defined but it's it's a general direction that I want to go in does that give you permission that a painting or a series doesn't have to be all things because you're going to do another one yeah yeah I think that's really important. That along with the idea that not every painting has to be perfect. Maybe we see a lot online. I'm going to say something really controversial here. So I just went to the Cezanne exhibition at Tate Modern. It's just opened in London. Absolutely loved Cezanne when I was younger. Found this exhibition a little bit underwhelming. So, you know, He's a fantastic artist. There were some paintings in there that were extraordinary, exquisite, but I could kind of count them on one hand. There were lots of paintings. There were even one or two. It's going to sound awful. If I found them at a car boot sale, I would happily put them on a bonfire, right? And yet we have an expectation that every painting we do has to feel like it's perfect and it's got everything nailed and it's all in the right place. And I'm not saying that you don't have any quality control or learning in your own work. But I think working across a group of different paintings gives you that freedom to make mistakes and to move on and review them in a group at the end. I think it's also quite a modern phenomenon, this idea of working in a collection. It's probably come from the fashion industry or something like that and the marketing sense of like you put them all out at once. I don't think it's always how artists work. So I would just say don't get too hit up in the idea of like what a series has to look like. Let your work inform itself and other paintings within it. But it's not about making a finish full stop and then you do something different. There's always a continuity of the way you work that's going into the next thing you're going to do as well. When you're working through a painting, and let's sort for the audience listening, like when we talk about a single painting, we're sort of talking about that painting within mm. the body of work. What are your goals, sort of those first marks, and how do those goals change as you work toward a finish? 
at the moment, early, it's just sort of getting started fairly quickly. I'm hesitating because I'm feeling that might change in the next set of work I make. But at the moment, and to date, it has been getting started quickly. So that often means doing something that is quite obvious on the canvas quite quickly, really getting your relationship with the canvas going and putting quite a lot in. If I know I want a full range from saturated to quite muted colours, I've got to put some of those really bright saturated colours in early on, even if it looks absolutely hideous. Because if I make a super gentle muted painting, it's going to be really difficult to add anything that that's vibrant and saturated in because it's just going to look horrendous. Whereas if I've introduced all the extremes at an early layer, so something really dark, something really bright, then I often come back with kind of light again. And this is the benefit of acrylic is that you can do this from one day to the next. You're not waiting for days or weeks between each layer. And then come in with some neutrals. I've got the elements that I like to play with. And I've often at that stage got some interesting combinations and layers starting to suggest maybe composition, form, mood, all of those kind of things. But quite often a lot of that gets completely lost in the process and a painting can just totally change direction in the course of one afternoon, go from totally light to dark or just go off on a total different colour adventure. And I just follow it now. Did you have to learn to give yourself permission to follow those instincts? Yeah, yeah. I think it's hard to do that because there's not many other areas in life where we are allowed to. I took a course with Nicholas Wilton, which I then a couple of years later taught on with him for a few years. But it was kind of revolutionary because he broke quite a lot of rules and he was so open and honest about the way he painted and actually watching somebody make a painting, make changes, make mistakes, rather than being taught how to paint. I think it's that difference between understanding something intellectually and really physically going, oh, I get that now. And the number of times that I would be kind of shouting, and this was online, shouting at the screen, like, no, don't change that. I like that bit. And then, and then it would be like, oh, oh, okay, now it's better. I get it. And really just feeling that in your body and thinking at the end of the day, it's only pain. It's only pain. We get so hit up about it. But it's very difficult to do that for yourself unless you really, I don't know how else you find that kind of license to do it just from within yourself. I think that's quite hard. What you said about knowing it in your body has continued to surprise me as a painter. Like you can know something intellectually and that's great. And that's mm -hmm. definitely step one. But to know it in your body is such a different Thing. Yeah. And I think, again, that's that's why when it comes back to this thing of processes awareness is giving that time in your process to recognize when those moments happen, because they can be very short. They can be quite fleeting. They can be like just just the pressure of, of a brush mark on the canvas. And you just think, oh, yeah, you know, and maybe you only have that for like three seconds in a two hour painting time where it really hits that high of, oh yeah, that's what I want. Or you mix a particular colour and it just sits next to another one. And, you know, it's just like the best taste flavour in the world and it hits your tongue and it just sparkles. And I think that's what we're searching for. But giving yourself time to recognise when you feel those moments, that kind of body awareness thing. 
So it's an important part of making art, I think. You said that you sort of have these elements that you get on the page to give yourself problems. And then how do you decide in a given moment, like where to go next? What are you sort of thinking through in that middle stage? Sometimes I write myself notes. So I might have like a little sheet of paper taped to the studio wall. And there might be a particular stage that I've left a painting at that for whatever reason, maybe it's lying on the floor and it needs to dry flat. But I know, I've got an idea that I know that I want to do. I also know these days that I might forget <laughs> next time I go into the studio. So I will write that down, you know, add more XYZ here or calm down this corner. So sometimes I know what the next step is. I think one of the rules, if there are any, that I've developed for myself is that there's those beginning stages of a painting for me where it's quite loose. You haven't got anything to risk yet because you haven't really made anything that you feel protective about. It starts to get to a stage where you do feel that and you want to, you end up trying to safeguard the bits about it that you like. And while I think it's important to recognize that you can't always safeguard those bits, I do think at this stage, otherwise you just end up going round and round in circles, it's important to go into a painting with a clear idea of what your intention for this part is. So am I adding precision? Do I need to wake it up and bring more looseness? Am I calming some colors down? Am I adding a little bit more depth? What is my particular intention for this? And if you don't know, if you can't answer that, you're only going to go into the painting and probably make more muddle. You're just going to make more mess for yourself. I think sometimes in the middle, paintings can sit in that stage for quite a while. And that's, again, where working with a series really helps because there's usually one that you've got a really clear idea that you know what you want to do next. That's just going to get it that step closer towards what's ultimately going to feel like a like it's complete, like you've done your work on it. How do shapes come into your work? Do you start big and go small or is that not even a consideration? I don't think I work very well with shape. I think I work well with line, which is a struggle when it comes to painting because painting is shapes. But as soon as I start thinking of shapes that maybe you know, have an edge or an outline, I can start to feel quite restrained. So I tend to like to layer and let shapes develop. And within what often happens within that is you end up with very small shapes. So at the work that I've done at the moment, there are small shapes, but they're quite free from. So they might be splatters, but if they're not painted, they're not controlled shapes within it. But shapes and pattern, I think I struggle with. It's not something that comes naturally to me. But the sense of space and scale working within larger shapes on a painting, trying to make paintings that are a little bit calmer so that you've got that large space, then you have to tone down the other elements. So you've got to tone down the value within that space. It's a much looser way of working, I think. And if you're not careful, you know, you end up with shapes being representational where you don't want them to be perpetual struggle. Also, what I love about this is that often when you're a beginner, you look at an artist and a body of work like your work and think that like that artist is fully formed. And mm. what I love about hearing you talk is that you are still in process. And I think that there's hopefully comfort for listeners in that, like you still have things that you struggle with as an artist and are challenges. 
Yeah, I, it's interesting because people often ask me, you know, you know, why don't you do a painting course? And the, and the honest answer is, I'm still working it out. You've heard me try and articulate what my process is. You know, I can't even do it for myself very often, let alone put it into a step one, two, three format that anybody else would be able to follow with any kind of clear, logical coherence, you know. And also, I don't want to be stuck within this space. The work that I've just finished is different from what I was doing a year ago. And I hope very much that the work that I'm going to be doing a year from now is different again. There will always be threads. And I think if you look back, you can see the like little stepping stones. Oh, okay, this led to this. And then there was a bit of a reaction against it. And it led to this. And there's always a development. But I think as soon as you've got your process really defined, actually, it's your job to kind of stir it up a bit. Otherwise, you're just going into production mode. And that is not where I want to be. Do you feel an internal shift when you know you're headed toward the finish? Yeah, I think it slows down a lot. At the end of the day, whatever work you create, you have to put your name to, whether that is sending it off to a gallery or standing in front of it at an art fair and feel not necessarily proud of, of what you've created, but sort of grounded in it, centred in it. So you need to give yourself enough time to feel, have I answered all the all the questions that have arisen in this painting? Is there anything that's standing out to me that I want to change, that niggles me, that bothers me? How does it sit a little bit in the timeline of my own work and within this group? Are there consistencies? And, and it is a little bit like, I don't know, like music or making a meal, you want flavours to go together, but not to all be the same. So I think towards the end, it very definitely slows down. Absolute telltale sign is when you've spent three hours working on a painting and visually you can see really not a lot of difference. Like if my husband saw the painting at breakfast and at lunchtime, he'd say, well, I don't know what you've been doing because it looks the same to me. It might look the same to him, but it feels different from me. But, you know, that would be a telltale sign step away enough as would yeah just niggling at things without really making changes and sometimes there are paintings that feel complete they feel finished they look finished they've got everything they tickle the boxes but they've lost their soul a little bit and I think you just have to kind of sit with those not let them out and then you'll either resurrect them later or very often there's something in a painting that isn't quite complete or if you're not sure it's quite complete it's because you've done something that's so new to you that it still feels a little bit uncomfortable a little bit on the edge of what feels familiar and I think that's another space where you have to be very very careful that you don't overwork it or pull it back into the stable with everything else that looks the same because it's often those paintings that really are going to be the clue to what you end up doing next and sometimes you look back and you think, oh, yeah, do you remember that painting that I did 18 months ago that felt like a really odd one? I get now what it was trying to teach me. So that slightly uncomfortable feeling, that's something that I've learned to look for and really enjoy and appreciate, I think, in a painting. Who we are when we walk into the studio each day is not the same person. So how do you gauge the headspace you're in and what kind of work the headspace can do that particular day? Yeah, it's interesting because I used to work at home and now I have a bigger studio away from home, which is lovely in one regard. It gives me more space, but sometimes it's a problem because it's not as immediate getting there. But that travel time can be quite helpful. I think it does give a little bit of distance and you can think, where were things where I left? 
And sometimes I take photographs to remind me. I would say less actually at the moment because what I want is I want that feeling of like walking in through the door and getting that immediate hit of, oh, that's better than I remembered. That's more exciting than I thought it was. Or sometimes the opposite is true. Sometimes you think, oh yeah, I left that one on a real high and you go in the next day and you think, oh no, 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 no. So I don't try to prejudge that much. I deal with what's facing me when I go into the studio that day. Sometimes I go in perhaps and if I'm not in the mood to maybe to be big and expressive, I might kind of take myself off on a little side project and do something else instead, which sometimes goes somewhere and sometimes it doesn't. But certainly on a big painting, if you're really not in the mood to do it, you can mess up a big painting and I'll do a lot of good work. So you work in layers. As you're working up in layers, how did you learn what to keep and what to layer over and kind of how to say goodbye to something you love? Saying goodbye can be quite hard. I think the tip for saying goodbye is is a little bit like the Marie Kondo tidying up thing. Thank it for its contribution so far, because what a fantastic position to be in. If you've got lots of things you love in a painting, great. You've got a lot of things to choose from, but maybe you can't do them all at once. So maybe there will be one of those things that you love. So say it is an amazing colour mix between a lovely midnighty blue and an olive green. But actually in this painting, you feel like you've got more fantastic, gorgeous, glowing oranges going on. You don't want all the colours in one painting, but there's a little bit of olive green in a painting over there. So maybe we'll kind of mentally transport that over to that painting. Thank you very much for the clue. Thank you for the idea. I will take you over there and I will develop it in that painting. And on this one, I'm making a choice for actually what's talking to me a bit louder in this painting. But I think the way that the layers work is at the beginning, I'm looking for those jumping off points. Then once you get them, once you get a sense of, okay, this painting is going to be mainly dark or it's mainly light or there's a really strong emphasis or shape happening or kind of directional flow going on over here. Well, that means that that part over there that needs to stay subdued. So I know that I can just work on that and keep it subdued, but still keep adding to it as long as those are the boundaries to it. Again, that comes back to that clarity about the different elements of how a painting needs to work together. You need something that's strong. You need something that's almost going to be leading the painting. And then the other ideas are supportive, really. And work with your layers like that. You know, do you want this to be visually obvious or do you want this to be subtle? And the trust comes that this, you can build the subtlety when you start working with things that are a little bit more sort of homogenous, really. So, you know, the subtlety comes in the layers where you've got blue on blue on blue. And when you get close, that's beautiful. It's so much better than just one hit of blue. Do you place any limitations like, do you do any like color limitations or shape limitations, any kind of that going into things? Or does it differ series to series? When I first started, I worked with a kind of much more traditional palette. And you can mix almost any color as long as you've got a warm and a cool yellow and warm and a cool red and a warm and a cool blue. But with acrylic, because of the drying and certainly as you scale up as well, it's not like you lay out a palette like you would do with a with an oil palette. Sometimes that just kind of grab a color, mix it and go with it gives me those unexpected contrasts that I'm looking for in a painting. Do you think this is something that I'm still finding my feet in? I did one series where I pre-mixed what I call my skeleton colours. 
And then I adjusted from them as I went. I'm not sure I entirely loved the process as much, though. But I do wonder now if probably it would be quite good to go back to a much more limited palette. But I know I've tried it. I've tried to do it in a sketchbook, too. I've got a sketchbook that says very proudly on the front page, this is my black and white only sketchbook. Do you know how long it lasted? It lasted about three pages. And then I wrote a little note that said, I can't stick with this. I need some colour. So I don't think I'm very good with limitations. Actually, let me just rephrase that. I think it's not that I'm not good with limitations. I don't like limiting myself at the beginning. I like flinging my arms wide open at the beginning. And then I bring the limitations in to the middle and at the end. I think that's an essential part of it. But if I do it at the beginning, I end up feeling a bit straightjacketed. That's probably a better way of describing it. Also, want to hear you saying, which is a little bit adjacent, that those first layers, you're not thinking about your goals for the painting. Like you're just putting color and shape and line. And then maybe mid toward end, like that's when you're thinking like, this is a series about X. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also sometimes what happens because a lot of the way I paint is about kind of how you feel in response to what's around you. Like I always say that they are landscapes, but the phrase that sits in my mind is the places in which we find ourselves. So it's not necessarily a vision of a place, but it is the place in which we recognize something of ourselves or the world around us. And that can exist along a spectrum. So sometimes paintings arrive and they're visually landscapey. They've got the horizon, there's a sky, there's a base. And sometimes that used to frustrate me in the same way that that painting of the tube station that looked too much like an underground tube station with a window. But now I just kind of let them be and I let the paintings find the right owners because I enjoy the fact that they can have quite strong links back to places. And then they can also become something that is much purer in terms of this is just feeling like that. This is just an expressive swoosh of, you know, green that feels like oak leaves moving in the wind. Like they're both same spectrums of what it feels to be outside. Or this is what it feels like when you're waiting at a train station and the wind's moving in front of your face. And I try not to define it too much, which is probably a bit of a weakness, but that's where we are. Well, then you've mentioned a couple of times that you work at a couple of different scales. Where does scale come into your process? What I really love about paintings and making art is that human connection that that you are making something that is tactile that you hold in your hand when you own a painting you can stroke it you can do whatever you want to it and it's something that we have in our living spaces too so I think when you make small paintings and as we're recording this, I've just finished a group of small paintings and the kind of intimate engagement on them is so different. It feels so different from those big, expansive paintings, almost as time consuming. It is crazy, but I quite like doing that. There's something really very meditative to them. That's what that series is called, Paperback Meditations. And I do love that immediacy because the things like the drawn marks can become much more part of the composition and they're much more visually clearly part of it. They can get lost in big paintings. I like the challenge of both. I like the way that what you do in small paintings informs what happens in big works too. And I like the way that big paintings stretch me and I have to keep reminding myself what it feels like to work on a big painting when I'm working on something really small. 
there's also something I like that I haven't really fully explored about the relationship between big and small paintings literally together. Like I've got this idea that paintings would stay together as companion pieces across space. So you've got a large painting in a room and then you've got a small painting that is somehow responsive to it that also exists within the room so that it almost becomes something that's outside of the parameters of the picture, you know, literally physically across space within the room. But I, I like the idea of paintings within homes as part of everyday life, rather than the idea of art as large scale installations kind of doesn't excite me. So it's that personal responsive that that's where I am on the scale front. So I guess for you, when you're building a series, are there small and large working in tandem? Or do you just work on small or just work on large? Or does it change for every series? It's almost like there are certain times in the year where I feel physically more like doing one than the other. So I follow that a little bit simply because of having this working space at home and having the big studio, like tiny paintings in the big studio would feel out of scale. They would feel like they lost themselves in that space. So I tend to work on the small ones when I'm working at home here and the big ones over in the main studio. So there's always a little bit of a distance. So they're not, in that sense, this is why there's this there's this gap still. They're not conceived necessarily as a series that work together, but it is really interesting how working on one, you can play with something like composition or how much you push the space within a painting and it's much easier to do on something small scale and then that gives you the confidence and the bravery maybe to push it a little bit more on the big ones so they're not studies ever for the big ones but I think that realization of what you're learning and why one is working maybe you've pushed the color a bit deeper than you dared to go quite on the big ones something like that that's how they help me anyway there's something about like opening the door to the path. Yeah, that's the exciting part though, isn't it? Opening the door to the path, like opening the door to the path. That's what we're looking for is like, what is that next part? What is the next step in your adventure and changing you as an artist and what you want to create? It just goes back to this idea of not having your work super predictable and getting a little bit comfortable in that space of not knowing. I think that's one of the hardest things that we have to do as artists and it is it's not easy as why being an artist is you know it takes courage I mean we're not changing the world right let's have a little bit of perspective on it here it is really only paint but what it means to you how it can lead your personal development how it can lead to making bolder decisions in other areas of your life and what it can inspire other people to do and to enjoy those are good things about life Listening to you talk about how you approach your work, I know some of us, you know, as beginners, we get so wrapped up in the one painting and thinking about how that feels to think this one painting makes or breaks everything I'm doing is so restrictive in terms of listening to you talk about your process is so expansive. I think that goes all the way back to school, you know, we're used to, you know, work is being judged and it's being marked against a set of criteria. And perhaps as adult, what we're trying to do maybe is set ourselves free a little bit from some of that. And if we're calling ourselves artists or if we're not even at the stage where we are calling ourselves artists, but we are making art, we are on the step of doing that. Like you've already made a decision to test yourself and challenge yourself and do something that is technically difficult just for the heck of it quite frankly 
if you want an easy life, there are other things to be doing, you know, follow a cross stitch pattern. And I don't say that disparagingly because, you know, I quite like sitting doing tapestries sometimes in the winter, but there's no doubt it's a lot easier. When my daughter was little, she wanted to learn to play piano and we had this fantastic tutor come to the house and I said, I'll learn with you on the condition that I don't have to follow any rules or do any exams. And then one day I realised that I was sitting and I was doing an hour and a half, two hours of piano practice a day because it was easier to follow the music and get my fingers to do the right things than it was to come up in the studio and figure out what I had to do next. And you know what I did the next day? I cancelled my piano lessons because ultimately, what did I really want to be putting my time into and developing? Not playing piano at that stage. I have limited time. And while I loved it, it didn't give me that open-ended sense of learning that making art could do because it was more directed, because it was more specific. And given the choice, you've got to make choices sometimes. You mentioned that you have two studio spaces. You started at a home studio and then expanded into a non-home studio. How did that change your practice? Well, first, I just want to say it took quite a while to get to that stage, not only to feel that I was ready for it, that I deserved it. Aren't we funny? You know, we're in London. I could justify the cost of it. Just to find somewhere that was suitable took about three years. It was tough. And when I did find it, it was bigger than I was looking for. It was more expensive than I was looking for. It made me feel completely sick. I mean, literally completely sick for at least the first four months that I paid rent. Made me feel completely guilty if I had a week where I didn't go. But it it was another one of those things that was a step towards taking what we do seriously. And I think there are steps that come before that, like investing in framing, committing to showing your work at art fairs or galleries, contacting people and saying, this is the work I've made, will you look at it? All of those things that are almost like little steps or promises that you make to yourself. And committing to the studio was doing that for me. I just sort of got it kitted out before we went into lockdown. So it was amazing to have a space to go to. And everybody was at home. The whole family was at home. It became a little bit of an escape zone. You know, I had plans to do workshops and it is just a complete mess now. You know, I work on the walls. I work on the floor. Sometimes, you know, the 10 large canvases all laid out on the floor and I'm kind of tiptoeing between them, trying not to fall over them. I couldn't have done that at home. I had space for one large painting at home. So it's totally changed the way I can work. Did that take time to learn how to work in the new space? Yeah, it was really scary. It was really scary. And all of those like middle to small size paintings just felt so insignificant, so insignificant in that space. So it's about 550 square foot. And then there's a bit divided off at the end for storage and packing and that kind of thing. So again, it's on that scale that is not like a room at home. So that relationship that I was talking about earlier between how we experience paintings in our home, that was missing all of a sudden. That was just that was just gone. So I found that quite a challenge. I still do find that quite a challenge. And I think there was always this sense of, can I inhabit this space? And initially I had a two-year contract and I think it totally in my mind was, I'm going to have to leave. I'm going to have to leave. I can't justify this. I'm going to have to leave. And then when I renewed the contract again, I was like, okay, right, I'm here. How much do you deal 
with imposter syndrome. And imposter syndrome might not be the right word, but how did you learn and are learning learned to navigate the parts of you that sort of said like, you're not going to be able to do this or who do you think you are or this is selfish, like all those things that are in our heads often when we start. It's funny because in our own podcast, Is Making Art Selfish was the second episode we ever did because I think it's something that we do really struggle with. I think it's something that's ongoing and ultimately, again, that's one of the other elements that I love art for is that it pushes us to face all these kind of questions and to deal with them. How have I dealt with them? I've had support. I haven't just relied on my family. (laughs) I've just relied on my family and what they said about our art. I mean, holy smokes. I mean... No. So I did have, I had a coach at the time. She wasn't a painter. She was an ex-accountant, but I really liked her attitude and approach to life. She was older than me. She was quite ballsy. She used to push you in quite a gentle way. And I think that it's a hand in hand journey all the way along. So I have, if I come across somebody else who does that kind of mindset, emotional development work, and it feels interesting to me, I do it. And without a doubt, at every stage where I've done that, it's led me to something more. But it is ongoing work and it is ongoing progress. And it fits into this whole thing that we were talking about earlier about recognizing things in your body as well. You know, I'm hitting 50 next year. My body is not the same as it was 10 years ago. It's not reacting to things the same. It gets tired in a different way. Anybody who's listening to this is older is kind of shouting at me going, just you wait, just you wait. But this is the thing is you're in the stage you're in now and it's always shifting. All you can do is manage the stage you're in now and ask yourself, what do I need now? Where do I need to support? How do I need to change? And, you know, eight, 10 years ago, I think I approached things from quite a masculine point of view, quite a challenging point, quite a pushy point of view. You know, this needs doing right, buckle down and do it. Now there's a little bit of, okay, I've laid the foundations. I can afford to take a slightly gentler step back. I can afford to let things take a little bit longer. I can take a day's break when I feel like I need it because that's what's going to serve me in the long term. And I think learning how we manage all of that stuff, you know, that's life goals. That's the business of being alive and functioning in the best version that you can with what you have in the moment and get support wherever you can because you need it. None of us can do it on our own. Right. Because I feel like when someone first walks into painting, they think like, well, I'm just going to mix some color and I'm going to lay it on a canvas. Yep. And that's it. And it turns out, that it's a lot more than that. And I think that can be confusing to people. Like, wait, 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 I thought it was just, like, why am I suddenly like asking myself all these deep life questions? I thought it was just paint on the canvas. Yeah, it's a little bit like having children in that way. You kind of, like, you know, it's probably going to be a little bit more complicated than you expect. But if you really knew everything that it was going to entail, you know, but it seems like a good idea. Let's get started. And then, you know, we'll learn as we go. We'll learn as we go. But you can also take it as far or as not far as you want to, right? We're talking about how I'm approaching my paint. Not everybody has, not even everybody has the same desire. It's more important than that. Everybody has unique desires and unique and totally different and personal ideas and where they want to aim for and what they want out of it. And no one of those is any more right than another other than how it sits with you. That's it. 
what I hear you saying is that it's worth spending time or emotions, like it's worth spending energy figuring out answers to some of those questions for you. I think realizing them as well and just making sure that you, you know, you're on your own track. Don't look at somebody else's progress or the kind of trajectory or even they're going off down a particular avenue with their painting and feeling like, oh, maybe I should be doing that their way because they are and therefore the way I'm working is any lesser they can be quite interesting signposts sometimes those little moments of you know is it is it envy that's actually quite valuable as in I want some of that right how do I get from here to there that's quite useful but it's a very different thing from everybody's doing that what I'm doing doesn't count unless I'm doing that and you need to be clear on that distinction If someone came to you and said, I want to get really good at painting, what advice do you give them? It's probably the most boring advice that anybody else always says, which is uh, just do more. But beyond that, more practically, what I would say is create some limitations for yourself. So having said earlier, I don't work very well with limitations. I do have limitations. We all have choices that we've made. So mine were no figures, no still life, you know, there was a leaning towards landscape. Okay, so landscape, how am I going to gather the information that I want? And the first kind of series I did, they were very small, they were about probably six by eight inches, they were in oil on board. And I did this kind of scratching through technique, I didn't even know that there was a technique called sgraffito, I thought, you know, but working on that group together, with a time scale in mind and a deadline really helped. So I think set some parameters, try to keep the format of what you're working on consistent. You can shift it next time, but having a consistent format, it just helps keep your head in the same place. You're not adjusting to that constant shift of scale. So, you know, four to six pieces, same size. Not everyone is going to be perfect. I've had times where I've worked on a group and my challenge has been, you know, make sure that they all finish. They all come over the finishing line at the same time. And I'm a bit looser about that now. And the reason that I had that quite strict rule for myself is it's quite easy at the beginning when you have one painting in a group that's struggling a little bit to kind of let that linger, let that stay behind. And you don't make yourself face up to what you have to do to change that painting. Whereas when I had that quite strict rule for myself, you have to complete all of these. I can't opt out and say that one's not working. I've got to go and make that one work, whatever that takes. And it was in the making that one work, those difficult bits, those stretchy bits, that's where I really learned. Now, maybe I can be a little bit more relaxed about that. And if I don't finish a painting that's part of a group, that's fine. It'll keep going in some other format. You can learn more about Alice Sheridan, including links to her podcast that she co-hosts with Louise Fletcher, Art Juice, at her website, alicesheridan.com, and on Instagram and Facebook, and we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Alice. Thank you. It's been um, a really challenging conversation. I love it that you've asked questions that have pushed me and I've really enjoyed it. So thank you for reaching out. We're finished with the main episode, but there's more great conversation with Alice Sheridan at patreon.com slash learn to paint podcast. Sign up at any tier and you'll get immediate access to Sheridan's extended cut bonus, where you'll learn why drawing might be the key to figuring out what a painting is about and discover some great ideas for how to hold time for your art practice. Plus, you'll have access to over 20 additional extended cut bonuses with guests. 
all for the price of coffee plus tip. For show notes, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 70. Thank you to all of you in the podcast art club and extra shiny thank yous to High Gloss supporters, Andrew Atterbury, Debbie and Brian Miller, Rihanna DeRold, Janet Wheeler, Nancy Bryant, Catherine Ordway, Pam Lyle, Victoria Young, and Slow River Studio. Happy painting!